and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. This is Trisha, and yesterday I got a cicatrix on my arm. A cicatrix? Yeah, um, I was helping Chris, like we were fixing the dishwasher, um, in which we did, and I put my arm in there a little too early after cycle, and I burned myself, gave myself Ouch. a scar. Aww. That's what a cicatrix is. Oh, it sounds much more fun than that. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. But, so, yeah. Anyways, that's my big news. I gave myself a scar um, doing home improvements yesterday. About you, anything exciting this weekend? Um, not too much. I did take the, the pup over to the dog park. Yeah, she liked that? She did. There were two other German Shepherd puppies there. And they just all three played and played and played, and it was great. Were they puppies, or are you calling them puppies, and they were really, like, full-grown? They were, like, eight-month-old. Oh, okay. So they were, like, still big, yeah. but still puppies. Oh, that's yeah. so cute. I yeah. love it when dogs play. Oh, my gosh. My dog does not like to play with other dogs, and it's so cute when they do. Mm-hmm. Rika likes to play with everyone. Well, take it while you can. Oh, I will. Because the older they get, the crotchetier they are, <laughs> at least in my experience. Because Mulder, when he was a puppy, he played. Right. Now he's just like, I'm almost 11, and it's my Frisbee, and no one else can touch it. <laughs> so. Makes sense. Um, well, um, before we get on to our new case, you have a question? I do have a question. Okay. So my question is, what is your favorite random fact? Like when someone's like, tell me something that's random, what's the, your go-to let me pause for a minute and think because I don't – okay, so um, I was just telling Courtney I listened to I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries, and at the end of every one, they do a random party fact. And one that just popped to my mind that I thought was pretty funny and weird is um, back in like the – I think it was the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think it was that time frame. It might have been earlier than that. Women or men of means would um, take a snip of their girlfriend's, wives, lovers' pubic hair and attach it to their hat. Huh. As like a, I have a lady and this is a piece of her. That was common. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I heard about like putting their ribbon or something on your hat. Nope, this is pubes. Hmm. Well, all right then. Haberdashery pubic fashion. Well, I mean, things used to, in some ways, be a lot less prudish than they are now. Yeah. So. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? So, because I'm a big psychology and kind of like mm-hmm. neuropsych nerd, um, my fact that I always turn to is that um, the chemical makeup between tears that you cry out of like pain or reflex. And tears that you cry from emotions are different. What do you mean? Like what's like they've just got different ones got more salt. So there's just a number of different like compounds in tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the science has found that tears that you cry from like emotions mm-hmm. has um, like different proteins in it, higher levels of prolactin. Um, and there were a couple other sort of like proteins and chemical compounds that are just different between the two of them do they know why i think it's just that like like different hormones maybe are being released and so that's like 
giving off different something like that yeah and they're produced from um two different sides of the eye so the tear ducts that produce them okay are different and yeah I always thought that was fascinating and I always I mean being a therapist bring that up and people are like I hate crying crying's bad and I can be like your body is biologically designed to cry when you are sad or happy or scared well I mean I've definitely read that it's a good stress reliever reliever to cry It definitely is. I hate crying because, well, I'm an ugly crier, but the next day my eyes are so puffy. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even have to cry very much at all, and they're so puffy, and they hurt, and they look weird. That's kind of one of the reasons I hate crying. Sure. I get it. But. But your body is biologically designed to cry. Well, mine kind of fucked up then because, (laughs) (laughs) like doesn't like it when I cry but well that is interesting yeah yeah that's fun okay well moving on we'll just say a brief little thing about last week's episode it was a different um thing and we've got a little bit of feedback um both um for and a little bit maybe not so much for it and the only reason being that we got we didn't really tell a story right and right. I think that some of our listeners that um, are re- really here for the story were probably kind of like, I'm not really, this isn't keeping my attention. Right. Um, and then I think some of our listeners that might have been here a little more for the psychology behind the stories might have been a little bit more interested. Um, but I I mean, we got, we got really good input on both sides. And so it's um, definitely going to do more of them. Yes. And um, I think that the main thing that we could maybe omit from, you know, if we do more personality disorders is we don't have to talk about the testing because we already did that. That's true. We went kind of in depth on the testing. And like you said, for someone who's not um, a clinical person, Mm -hmm. who's not exposed to that kind of testing, it was kind of hard to um, totally understand. I was struggling with it a little bit. Someone like you, who that's kind of that's what what I do. do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I imagine your assessments have a have a little bit of that, you know, in it, right? Try you're trying to diagnose a problem. Right. So you are mm-hmm. used to doing that. And so to you it's second nature and to probably some of our listeners that are also in the clinical field it's second nature. And um I'm constantly learning, so I love it. So I definitely have more of a clear view on how cuz whenever we read these books or we talk about these cases They'll say they were went to wherever and they were diagnosed with this, that, and the other. But they don't sit there and tell us how that happens. Right. You're just told that they did a evaluation or they did a month in here and were observed or whatever. But they don't really get down to the brass tacks. And I think that's what you covered very well. Right, right. And I wanted to kind of point out that, like, it's very common, I think, in our culture to, like, throw around diagnoses Mm -hmm. in a very casual way um which on the one hand is good it gets people talking but on the other hand um I think it sometimes takes away the seriousness of like what it actually means to have Mm -hmm. a diagnosis yeah I agree especially in the social media internet age that we now are in right where there's you never know what information is accurate um and, you know, all that. Um, I will say that this case that we're going to talk about today is also going to be probably a controversial <laughs> episode. There might be lots of emotional tears attached to this, yeah. one, I'll be honest. Um, a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, we're just going to straight out say this from the get-go. 
because we did have a couple conversations on if we should even proceed with this case. Um, but we're going to, and I hope we don't regret it. But so I'm going to read what I wrote and we're going to be looking, like I said, at a very controversial case today. Uh, I think it's going to be two parts. So today and next week, the serial killer we are discussing was an abortionist. So just to get it out of the way, we're not going to discuss our opinions on abortion. This is not going to be a stage for political activism, but we will be discussing a very disturbing case that goes beyond pro-choice and pro-life. Um, like I said, we were hesitant to even discuss this because of the political climate on this topic currently. However, what this man did was considered to be a crime, more than just a crime he committed one time, but a crime he committed over and over again. This is going to be very hard to discuss. So please, if you want to skip this whole thing, do so. It was hard to read about. It was hard to write about. And it will be hard to discuss. Babies died. Lots of babies died at the hands of this man. And he hid behind the abortion label to commit his crimes. Um, with that being said, unless, Courtney, you want to add anything, we'll, we'll get started. Nope. Just proceed with caution. Um, he did other crimes, too. He <laughs> so did. Today, we're going to be focusing more on um, what was happening both, I believe, maybe before a little bit and alongside of the um, abortion crimes. There was other stuff that this dude did. Yes. He was just not a good yeah. dude. So this is um, what we'll mostly be talking about today. Uh, his name, okay, the book that we use this time, it's called God's Nell, The Untold Story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. Two authors, Anne Michelhaney and Philem McKayler, M-C-A-L-E-E-R. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it looks like it was turned into a movie, but we never watched that. We couldn't find it anywhere. Um, we did watch the documentary. Yes. That was like went hand in it. hand with the, with the book. Um, so, anyways, this is about Kermit Kermit Gosnell, and there isn't a whole lot on his childhood. So, the author of the book we're using um, did say, "quote Like many serial killers, Kermit Gosnell had a lovely upbringing," and the authors throughout the book seemed kind of sarcastic. So I'm assuming this is another sarcastic sentence, meaning he most likely had a terrible upgreen, upbringing, but nothing was really outlined and I couldn't find anything online. Do you think that's a safe assumption, Courtney? I do think that they were being sarcastic, um, but I interpreted it the opposite way, actually, that while most serial killers do have a pretty terrible childhood, Kermit, being unlike most serial killers, actually did have a lovely upbringing. Okay. I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny that right. statement. So um, we're going to come at it from different angles. I'm going to assume that there was terrible things that happened to him that just weren't talked about. And you're going to assume that he had positive things, you know, going pretty on just that, normal up, that didn't get bringing. talked about. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, we, based on the interviews that we heard from Gosnell, so he, he's like a lot of a narcissist likes to talk. Um, I don't think that if he did have a bad childhood, I don't think that he would tell us about it. I think he would be too proud um, or in denial. I don't know. So I don't know that even if they did talk to him directly about his childhood that he would have even said the truth. Um, so anyhow, let's see. What we do know is this. He was born February 9th, which is my dad's birthday. It's the and, day after my birthday. Yeah, it's all those February people. Yeah. Uh, in 1947 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was an only child. 
one of the parents worked at the gas station and the other as a government clerk. He is also a black male. Um, not black mailed. He is a black male. <laughs> so when I, I, I didn't know that when I got this book. Um, didn't know until I was like halfway through it. But somehow we are doing two black serial killers nearly back to back. So there you go. There definitely are more in the population than we're aware of. He graduated from Central High School in 1959, and apparently this was a prestigious high school. Bill Cosby attended the school, as well as the future DA of Philadelphia, Seth Williams, who would ironically put Gosnell away. He then went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school, for a brief time before transferring to Dickinson College. Um, apparently he would have struggled to get into medical school, medical school if he stayed at Penn. So he switched to Thomas Jefferson and he actually got a medical degree in 1966. Now I was unable to find if he completed an internship or residency in any subject completed. And I went onto the boards of family medicine and, and obstetrics and gynecology and I didn't find anything. So in today's medical climate, uh, many insurance panels require medical doctors to be board certified in their specialty, and typically this requires a one-year internship and three years of residency and maybe a fellowship uh, before you're eligible to sit for your boards. But back then, I don't think it was nearly as common for that to be, and I don't know that it was a requirement, but it's pretty commonplace now for new graduates. So, you know, after many years in provider credentialing, I recommend that you look up your doctors or potential doctors on the state licensing boards to see if there's any reprimands. And personally, I would also verify board certification, especially in a high-risk specialty such as OB or surgery. And you can do all of this online. You can go to the American Board of Medical Specialties, look up your doctors. It's free. You can go to your licensing board, look up your doctors. It's free. So after medical school, Kermit stayed in the West Philadelphia area and was a community activist in Mantua, which was a crime-ridden area. People liked and admired Gosnell, and he created a halfway house for addicts and at-risk youth. He was even a finalist for Junior Chamber of Commerce, quote, Young Philadelphian of the Year Award. From all accounts, it looked as though he would go on to do great things. He seemed to be a philanthropist and really wanted to help people, especially underprivileged people. Courtney, anything you want to add? I mean, I think by this point we can at the very least tell that we were dealing with a highly intelligent individual. At this time in his life, he was thought of as a kind and caring person. He would treat neighborhood children who could not pay if they got hurt. He was healthy and ran triathlons and was an avid gardener. I also assume based on later actions that he cared for animals. So Kermit clearly is very intelligent. Um, and when you hear him speak, it's pretty clear that he's well-educated and knows just how intelligent he is. Um, you know, he got a lot of pride and self-esteem from his role in helping others or saving the less fortunate, which, you know, may have started out as genuine caring for others. However, you know, as we will probably see as the story continues, I think that after a while, Kermit liked the idea of helping or being seen as that helper more than he actually liked helping people or animals. Mm -hmm. I agree. At some point, uh, Gosnell went to New York somewhere between 1960 and the 70s. He received a medical license there as well and was a strong supporter of abortion rights. He came back to Philadelphia in 1972 and he had his uh, medical practice on Lancaster Avenue there. Gosnell had three wives in total and was the father of six children and one foster child. His third wife, Pearl, was married to him during his arrest. 
Primarily at his clinic, he provided abortions to women who were low income, but he was also willing to do them later um, in like gestational age than other clinics in the area, much later. So just for, re- for reference, to have a legal abortion clinic in the state of Pennsylvania while Gosnell was in practice, there must be a physician on staff that completed a residency in OBGYN. So Gosnell started a residency but did not finish it. Um, and at the time he opened his clinic, he hadn't finished it. But when the state first licensed the clinic in 1979 to be an abortion clinic, there apparently was another provider at the clinic who was uh, did pass that residency requirement. Gosnell was considered a staff physician under the OB provider. Also, what is required of all clinics is accessibility for gurneys to get in and out of the building, say if there was an emergency and an ambulance needed to be called. Ten years later, when the clinic was inspected again, Gosnell was the only physician left. This in itself should have prevented the clinic from being licensed to perform abortions. The inspectors also noted that there were no registered nurses, which is also a serious violation. But they decided to renew the license anyhow. The practice was inspected again in 1992 and even was again granted licensure despite the lack of required staffing being met. By this time, the building was very cluttered. There was no real way to access the emergency equipment. But a year later, the clinic was okayed again. Then the state did not come back for an inspection for another 17 years. Now, a lot of people are technically responsible for Gosnell being able to do what he would end up doing. Had this clinic been shut down in 1989 when they should have have for all the failed inspections, so many things would be different. So this case does have a little bit of parallel to Charles Cullen. You know, like he was passed off from hospital to hospital because they were afraid of lawsuits. And Gosnell, in my opinion, was continually licensed because the politics around abortion rights were so volatile and no one wanted to rock the boat. Also, his clientele tended to be poor and people of color who we have seen repeatedly get the shaft by society and those that should be protecting them. The book points out that, quote, Pennsylvania gave Gosnell carte blanche for the next 17 years. With every license extension and slipshod inspection, state health regulators sent a message. Do what you like, because no matter what you do, we won't bother you. And we don't care whom you kill or injure along the way. Courtney? When reading this book and about this case, I feel like I'm almost more upset with the regulators who just let everything happen, you know. And as we'll find out, Kermit didn't even seem to try to meet regulations after a while, mm-hmm. you know. And there's there's so much political muck that we could get sucked into here, and I want to avoid what I can. Um, but I do agree that the lack of care and accountability likely does have something to do with the population that Kermit's clinic served in West Philadelphia. As you noted, and as we have seen time and time again, people of color and without means are valued less by the powers that be, um, less than, you know, their white and wealthy counterparts. And it's almost like they were expected to just be grateful that they had a clinic at all, um, when really they deserved a clinic that was clean, safe, and staffed by qualified medical professionals. So let's talk about some of the complaints that were brought to the Department of Health that no action was taken by the Department of Health. Okay. In 96, the Department of the Department is called DOH. DOH was notified that Gosnell had perforated a woman's uterus in an abortion procedure. 
1996 that he was fined and reprimanded by both New York and Pennsylvania licensing boards for having unlicensed staff working for him. So yes, he had staff with very little education working for him. Some of them hadn't even completed high school, and we'll get more into that somewhere along the line, but um, definitely... Anyhow, in 1997, Dr. Donald Schwartz, who was a pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, delivered a complaint himself, like a handwritten complaint himself to the DOH, stating that many of the young women he had referred to Gosnell for abortions came back afterwards with trichomoniasis that they allegedly got from Gosnell Clinic. So we'll also teach you guys, not teach you, but we will inform you that cleanliness of his instruments was not his top priority in 1999, an abortion patient of Gosnell's was sent home after the procedure and became very ill. When they were admitted to the hospital, they determined that not all of the fetal remains had been removed from the mother. No ultrasound was performed before or after the procedure by Gosnell. Consequently, the patient became septic and had to recover in the hospital for several weeks. In 2000, a patient of Gosnell's passed away after getting an abortion at the clinic. This did lead to a $400,000 uh, payout to the patient's family. 2009, another patient um, had a botched abortion there, and there was part of the fetus inside of the mother, but also he tore the cervix, bowel, and uterus of this patient, and this required emergency surgery. A lawsuit was filed in this case, but the lawyer was not a very good one, so it didn't result in a settlement. What do you think so far, Courtney? I can just feel my body tense up and shudder just hearing about the terrible injuries that those women incurred. Like, I want to, like, curl up in a little ball. Yeah. You know? I mean, how these could have been ignored or covered up or whatever, it's just astounding. Like, how did he even continue to have malpractice insurance? Yeah, that's something that we'll talk about later, too. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk about the state of the medical clinic um, based on eyewitness accounts. One former employee had this to say. Um, she did end up leaving the clinic when she realized she was in no way educated or skilled enough to do the procedures asked of her. Quote, there are two cats walking around in this medical office. They are allowed in procedure rooms. They vomit up and down the steps. On procedure days, they reuse curettes, which are little surgical instruments that scrape tissue, but they are disposable. They never get thrown in the trash. There are dried up blood stains in the chairs in the recovery rooms. The doctor will eat in procedure rooms while the patient is in there. There are two males in the room while procedures are taking place. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there for a second. So even at our place of work where we have a female um, provider, medical provider, if she's doing any sort of um, anything where the patient has to be gowned, she has someone in the room with her. So, And that's two females with a female. So I'm just like two males right. with the female like that's that's not right here right um many of the patients complain but nothing is done the patients are knocked out on medicine they pay for twilight and custom anesthetic but get only heavy they are unaware of this in one of the charts a patient used her cousin's insurance to get the procedure done and they wrote that in this chart there are minors who don't want the procedure done and they say it but the doctor does it anyways the doctor does second tries on two, on Tuesday nights, so second trimester pregnancies on Tuesday nights, and does not report it to the IRS. He pockets the money. On Mondays, the office is open until 11 p.m. The doctor will write, night, write notes for patients he hasn't seen in three months. He, I meant scripts, or they meant scripts, like prescriptions. He also writes a lot of Percocet prescriptions, 90 for the same people, like every Monday night. The pediatric room where they get weighed is where the cat's litter box is. 
The doctor will do their procedures right after they've been counseled. Legally, you're supposed to wait 24 hours. So I guess um, when you get when you go in and you want an abortion, they give you some counseling and they say sleep on it. And then you're supposed to come back. And then if you want it, then they do procedure. But he would just counsel them and then do it right away, which is illegal. The person who cleans doesn't take out the whole trash bag. They just take what's in the trash bag. Nasty. If a patient vomits, it's in the trash the next day. Okay, so that was an account of an employee, right? Um, telling um, Later on, telling a grand jury what was um, it like working there. So obviously, this is wrong on so many levels. Can you imagine going to any place of business, let alone a medical office, and seeing this filth? Not only is it unsightly, it's dangerous. Medical offices should be sterile environments, at least the exam rooms, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, Courtney, let's discuss what this could mean. Do you think Gosnell is just a simply lazy-ass person who does not care about hygiene or cleanliness or keeping up his Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm? Or do you think something could be wrong in his mind? Is this the kind of filth similar to people who are hoarders? What do you think is going on? So, like you said, I can't imagine going to any sort of professional space in this condition, let alone a medical office. Um, And I have a couple thoughts about what might be going on um, for Gosnell. I think you do have you know, are on to something with the idea of hoarding. Um, so I want to be clear, not all people are who are hoarders live in filthy or unsafe conditions. Um, so a little bit about hoarding. Hoarding is a subset of obsessive compulsive disorders. Um, and so people with hoarding disorder have a hard time discarding or parting with possessions, no matter what their value. They feel the need to save items either because they believe they can be useful in the future or they have sentimental value. And so this results in the accumulation of clutter that then interferes with the ability to either use the items themselves or to use the space that they are in. Um, And it is very common for people with hoarding disorder to hold on to items that other people think of as trash or garbage. So that being said, if we think about the description that you gave or that an employee gave of the space where it's sort of cluttered, it's hard to maneuver, there's lots of stuff around. Um, but then also, you know, saving and reusing disposable metal equipment like the curettes could fall in that category. Um, and pictures and descriptions of the office also reported there being empty plastic containers like juice containers or cat litter jugs that were just lying around or being used to hold biological matter. Um, We'll get more into that later, um, but it could also be suggested that Gosnell was kind of hoarding bodies, Um, but we'll talk about that probably next time. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the other side of things, I also think that Gosnell's complete disregard for health and safety standards speaks to the level of his narcissism. You know, he thought so highly of himself that nothing he did could possibly have been wrong, which is why he didn't try to hide anything. He was very open about all of his practices. You know, he showed up at the clinic whenever he felt like it and did things however he wanted to. And he took no responsibility for injuring these women. And when talking about the cases, you know, he frequently minimized his role in the outcome. It was always someone else or something Mm -hmm. else's fault. 
Well, he was also negligent with his patients who were addicts, and one such patient went to Gosnell for a procedure. She made it very clear to the staff and to Gosnell himself that she was a recovering addict and had been on methadone therapy for two years. Knowing this, perhaps ignoring it, perhaps doing it on purpose with malicious intent, I don't know, Gosnell ordered a drip of Nubane, and apparently this drug is contraindicated for patients on methadone. The patient complained that she felt bad and told him to stop with the drug, but Gosnell ignored her. She ended up pulling the IV out of her arm herself. She then went into convulsions, which caused her to fall off the table and hit her head. So she got a lawyer to sue Gosnell. Um, And this goes back to what you said earlier. Physicians are required to have malpractice insurance, but guess who didn't have malpractice insurance? Gosnell. Yep. The attorney wrote to the state telling them this, and the state did nothing, of course. Great. In 2007, the Delaware County Medical Examiner reported to the Department of Health that Gosnell aborted a fetus that was up to 34 weeks of age, which is way beyond the legal limit. The Department of Health did nothing. In 2009, Karnamaya Monger died after she had an abortion at Gosnell's clinic. She died of being over-medicated by the staff who had no licensing and some only in 8th grade education. Gosnell did report the death, but the DOH did nothing. So yeah, there were people on staff who were giving intravenous medication. Anesthesia. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, amongst other things, painkillers mm-hmm. too, whatever, and mm-hmm. just willy-nilly giving whatever Gosnell said, never being officially trained to do any of this. I mean, I'm not positive what it is in Pennsylvania, but in Oregon, you have to be a certified registered nurse anesthetist. anesthetist. <laughs> or a medical doctor. Like, those are the mm-hmm. two people that can give... Uh, anesthesia and not someone that didn't even graduate middle school. Right. So anyhow, what ultimately got Gosnell on the police's radar was none of the above things that should have been putting him out of business years ago, but he also had a pill mill. He was also running out of this clinic. In 2009, Gosnell's clinic was raided because of this. The police had enough evidence based on the information that they had been collecting to arrest him for distri- distributing distributing prescriptions illegally. Per the book, quote, Gosnell's scheme allowed for drug dealers to collect multiple prescriptions on the same day for numerous fake patients. For example, Gosnell had been selling prescriptions to Fiona, a patient, under 26 different names. On a typical night, Gosnell would sell 100 scripts. So he was selling all kinds of things. Oxy being the big one at the time. Again, I recommend watching Dope Sick. It's a great series on the Oxy epidemic in which Gosnell did not help anyone in this neighborhood. Um, Gosnell on one occasion wrote prescriptions for the police informant. So the person that the was a former um, patient slash whatever got prescriptions from Gosnell, got busted, decided to flip and work for the police. And while that was happening, this is one of the scripts that Gosnell wrote for her. Um, so that was... In one day, 60 80 milligram tabs of Oxy, 90 tabs of Xanax, 8 ounces of Phenagrin with codeine, 60 tablets of Bactrim, and 60 10 milligram tabs of Lexapro. But he would basically sell whatever the patient wanted. They paid him cash. He gave them the script. They went to the pharmacy and filled it. They would then use it themselves or sell it on the street. Gosnell was making tons of money off of this endeavor, along with his abortions that he was paid for in cash typically. He uh, also paid most of his staff under the table. So you can see that he dealt with a lot of cash coming in, going out. 
this raid is what got the police involved in the case. Um, you know, the case that the Department of Health should have been involved in from the beginning. So unfortunately for the officers who raided the clinic, what they uncovered during this raid was far more horrific than anyone could have imagined. The police involved certainly were not prepared to see what they saw. The investigation that sprung from a pill mill raid turned into one of the most controversial, depraved, and shocking investigations we've ever studied. Kermit Goswell, Kermit Gosnell may indeed <laughs> be one of the most prolific serial killers in America. Courtney, the book might not be lying. What do you think? I think that I am so glad that I was not one of those responding officers in that raid or one of the DAs working on it mm -hmm. or their investigators who had mm -hmm. to see what they saw. Yeah. Going in expecting to just close down a doctor selling illegal prescriptions and found so much more than they bargained for. Yeah. Um, next week, we will reveal what the investigation uncovered. I feel like this is like a cliffhanger. It is a bit I of mean, a cliffhanger. I mean, it's a horrible cliffhanger. Um, right. You know that he's a serial killer. So obviously, yeah. you know that, you know, someone's dead. And possibly the most prolific, um, of course. Um, but, but that's what they all say. Yeah. So this is like an interesting case in, in the fact that he had a lot of illegal stuff going on that for itself makes him a despicable, horrible human being. And we haven't even gotten to the worst part of it yet. Nope. And he should have been shut down so long ago. You know, I can't say that he wouldn't have done what he did later on, but perhaps if, like, he actually had been, like, cited or reprimanded by the Department of Health at some point, he would have kept a clean clinic. He would have had a licensed staff. Right. But they did nothing. So he You just... would think that, like, if someone had cited him for something, that then there would be, like, follow-up inspections. Yeah. And, like, so, I don't know, some sort of, like, probation plan or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, nothing. Unfortunately, um for the women involved in this case and the babies. Um, there were a lot of, we'll get more into it next week, but there were a lot of referrals uh, thrown Gosnell's way from proper providers that mm -hmm. just would refuse to do abortions or would refuse to do abortions at, at later than what, the, you know what I mean? So a lot of these women did start out at a reputable, a reputable provider who just handed them off. Um, right. Not saying that's their fault, of course, but there was just a lot going against the clientele. A lot of desperation. Yeah. So anyhow, um, that is it for today. Yes. And we will get cracking on next week's conclusion because I believe it will just be two parts. I don't think there's enough to do three and I want to drag it out. Um, so, yeah. Anything you want to say before we sign off? Um. Don't look this case up if you want to be surprised. Yeah. There's a lot of media attention about it if you look for it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Not as much as it should have gotten because I had never heard no. of it and it's not that old. It was very much localized. Yeah, I believe so. I believe if you're from the – in fact, I texted my cousin who lives out um, in the Philadelphia area and he does remember it. His wife had to be kind of prompted and then she's like, I think I remember it. Mm -hmm. So – it, yeah, even there it wasn't like as huge as it should have been. Right. So, all right, everyone. Um, stay safe and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.